Georgia's DBHDD is urging people to store and lock away all medications to prevent theft and keep them away from children and pets. Old medications can be disposed at Dropbox locations. Dropbox locations can be found at opioidresponse.info. Thank you all for being with us for Political Rewind today. I'm Bill Nygut. Uh, we got a lot to talk about, of course, with a big Democratic presidential debate last night. Um, for me, uh, a debate that starts at 8 o'clock and goes to 10 is really like staying up really late. So <laughs> I'm still trying to wake up a little bit here this morning. But I think our panel will help me do that as we talk about the debate. But we also, of course, have state and local politics to talk about as well. So let's get right to it. Uh, let's start by uh, introducing Greg Bluestein, who was in Charleston for the debate. In fact, spent a couple days over there. And uh, Greg, you're still there, and uh, we appreciate your joining us by phone. The interesting thing is you can talk to us about the debate, but you also got a couple of really good Georgia-related stories while you were up there, and we'll get to those as well. How are you? I'm doing great, and that's the goal, to, to write about national politics, but through a Georgia lens. Just like political rewind. Well, thank you for being uh, with us here in the studio. Heath Garrett is back with us. We haven't seen you for a few weeks. You've been on the road uh, with your various candidates in the 2020 cycle, I guess. Been out trying to preserve liberty everywhere we can, <laughs> Bill. <laughs> and make a little money in the process that's as a right. consultant. Heath Garrett, of course, a Republican operative here, strategist. Uh, who has worked with many, many Republican candidates and uh, elected officials over the years, most prominently, of course, Johnny Isaacson. And before I introduce the rest of the panel, just give us a brief update. We haven't talked about Johnny since he uh, was uh, unfortunately had to resign from the Senate. How's he doing? He's doing relatively well. He's uh, in, in the office every day now uh, trying to figure out what it's like to be a retired senator, and we're really excited. He's put together uh, a new 501c3 that's going to be called the Isaacson Initiative. Uh, we're doing a soft launch now, but the primary purpose is to raise funds and encourage and educate about neurocognitive research for the cures for Parkinson's hopefully Alzheimer's, dementia, and others. And, and how's he doing in terms of ma managing his disease? He's doing really well. Being home is allowing him to do the physical therapies that go along with Parkinson's, which are critical, and those patients who have Parkinson's know people who do know that those therapies, what they, the advances in the last couple of years, if you do those therapies on a daily, weekly basis, it, it has a profound effect. And That's allows good him to, to hear. have a good quality I, of life. I think everybody, Republican or Democrat, no matter what their ideology, wish him nothing but the best as he uh, goes forward with all of this. Well, thank you. Terry Anulowitz uh, is back with us, State Representative Terry Anulowitz, a Democrat. You just told us the, the session has been exhausting so far. It has been an, ex an exhausting session. And it is also, we've been spoiled the past few years with the adjournment resolution, which is the fancy name for the calendar of which days we're actually in session, which days are the 40 days. And that's been coming in dribs and drabs. Yeah. We've had two separate adjournment resolutions. We've had calendar changes with the different, and, and all of this is due to the budget. But when you're trying to plan logistics and yeah. spring sports and all those other good things, because we all live our lives while we're not at the Capitol, I, I, it is exhausting. I apologize. I, I may be behind on this, but the last calendar I saw only took you all through about day 28. March it didn't 12th. even include uh, crossover day. 
No, crossover day is going to be March 12th. Oh, it is. Yes, that's day 28, and I can remember that because that is my daughter's 12th birthday. Oh, good luck. Which is going to be great. All right. So, again, exhausting. I bet it is. Uh, Kyle Hayes is with us from NPR Studios in Washington. Kyle, of course, is the founder and the voice you hear on Peach Pod, uh, which is a terrific podcast. Although Kyle is now in Washington, he's a native Georgian, and he still keeps very close track of Georgia politics. Kyle, I apologize. I usually try to check what your most recent podcast is before we go on the air. I just didn't get to it today. What's what's up there right now that our listeners might want to listen to? Uh, well, first of all, good morning, y'all. It's great to be Hi. back. Um, the most uh, recent thing we did, we sort of assessed Michael Bloomberg's place in the Democratic primary, but it does sort of feel like Bloomberg week was last week. We're going to be back after the South Carolina primary this weekend to recap where the race is at that point. Well, and of course, we're going to talk a lot about Michael Bloomberg in his performance last night as we talk about all the candidates in the debate. But Greg Bluestein, before we talk about the presidential debate, one of the stories that you got out of Charleston which is an important story for Georgia. You did an interview with Tom Perez, the chairman of the Democratic National Committee, and he gave you what I think people would consider to be big news. What did he say? Yeah, he said that Georgia is going to be one of the DNC's top battleground priorities for for 2020, which means an infusion of more cash and resources in Georgia for, for Democrats. They're going to be opening offices, more offices in Georgia. They're going to be hiring additional field organizers, and it's, it's a sign that they feel like they can expand the political map to include red states like Georgia and Texas and, and, and in addition to Ohio, which is also on their list. Um, he also said something to you that I thought was interesting. He said that in the past they've approached Georgia, and I think he was probably talking about a few other states as well, as sprints, not marathons, meaning the DNC would jump in at the last minute and get involved in races. But this time he's saying we're in it for the long haul, right? Yeah, I mean, that's, that's exactly what Georgia Democrats have been complaining about for years, is that is that national organizers would get to Georgia in, you know, the summer before an election and, and start ramping up then, and that's the sprint that he's talking about. He's at least saying now that, that they will get to Georgia in, in March. Um, look, to, to many Democrats, it's still too late. I mean, Stacey Abrams last year sent a memo, and I think you all remember, saying that it would be malpractice for, for national party operatives to ignore Georgia, and she was encouraging them to to get the groundwork done, you know, as soon as possible. But still, you know, it's, it's welcome news for Democrats that, that the National Party is, is, is focusing in Georgia. It's hard to see how they couldn't with two Senate races, with competitive House races, and with, with polls showing a very tight, tight contest with President Trump. Kyle, one of the other things that this addresses, although it did not come up in the interview that Greg did with Perez, uh, is we've always thought of Georgia as a cash cow for Democrats. The Democratic candidates raise a lot of money from Georgians, uh, but they don't can't make much of a commitment to uh, being involved in campaigns here. And this apparently is an answer to that as well, Kyle. Yeah, I mean, it was notable that um, some of these complaints over the lack of infrastructure in the state, offices, staff, um, that, that that actually was the rationale for some people for endorsing Michael Bloomberg, who has invested in some of that staff in the state. So I'm sure that Democrats are now pleased to see that these investments are being made. But, you know, the calendar goes quickly and, and these things take some time to ramp up sometimes. And I'm sure they would have liked it a little sooner. Um, Heath, uh, we get a Republican perspective on this. It's interesting that uh, the Democrat DNC now wants to compete in the two Senate races. It certainly makes sense when you've got two Senate races in this state, you'd want to get involved. 
But we should also point out that the Cook Report, Larry Sabato's Crystal Ball, both, and they're, those, they're, they're respected analysts, respected interpreters of data about what's happening in states around the country. In, in both cases, in one case, I think Cook has said uh, that uh, both of those races are likely uh, Democratic, uh, I mean Republican, I think the other, Sabato said, leaning Republican. So it'll be a push for Democrats, including the DNC, to try to win those races. Right. As a Republican, we've been preparing for this uh, for, for a few folks. They knew that the Stacey Abrams has been working at building the Democratic Party really since 2012, 2014. So I call it the Stacey Abrams effect. And now she's reached a certain level in the National Party where she holds a lot of sway. And I think that her memo and other uh, folks in the party have said, hey, we've got an opportunity here in Georgia. We as Republicans are preparing for that. We were caught a little bit flat-footed in 2018. Uh, there will be a reaction to that. We've been organizing and mobilizing and capitalizing in a way that uh, the Republicans haven't uh, been doing in the past. But as I've said before on this show, we're going to see a historic amount of money spent, a historic number of boots on the ground from both parties in 2020. In theory, the Electoral College could be in play uh, for Trump. He, he may hover around 50 or just under 50. The question is, can the Democratic nominee overcome the troubles they're having now and make a real run at him or do third party candidates uh, do that? You do have two U.S. Senate seats, and we believe David Perdue is very safe, and we believe that uh, Senator Leffler and potentially uh, Doug Collins, whoever's in the runoff there, if it's not the two of them together, you know, will, will, will fare well against the current Democratic field. However, uh, any Republican out there listening should not take Georgia for granted, and I think we're headed to a decade of uh, pretty balanced politics. Uh, Terry, this has implications in your own uh, backyard in the Georgia House, where Democrats hope to be able to take control after, as, as he's alluded to, a very good 2018. Yes, this is incredibly validating. I mean, you want to talk about the sprint and the marathon. The Democrats in Georgia have been running this marathon for for years. And I think that Stacey Abrams, I hope she's listening here thinking like, because you know, she's been the Cassandra of Democratic politics in Georgia saying this is what is going to happen. This is what is happening. This is what we need to be doing. And I don't think it was hyperbolic of her to say it would have been political malpractice to enjoy, to ignore Georgia going forward. I mean, we are again, we've been we have Democrats who are on the ground here who have been doing this work and have been doing hard work. And the the gains that we have made are Indisputable. You know, you talk about between, you know, I was just writing down some statistics before we came in. Between 2017 and 2018, we went from 16 seats, we, we gained, we, we, I'm sorry, from between 2017 and 2017, we went from 62 Democrats in the Georgia House of Representatives to 75. Mm -hmm. We have 16 seats that we need to get so we can get the majority in the House. And that is not a pie in the sky figure. We have solid candidates running in just about every seat and every target. We have really excellent candidates running in every targeted seat in the Georgia House of Representatives. And this is something that we can do. I think that it, I think that the Republicans in Georgia have taken this threat seriously for quite some time. And I'm glad that now the Democrats at the national level are recognizing not only all the work that's been done, all the gains that we've made, but understand that, yeah, we can we can make this happen. We can, we can help continue to influence this change. Right. I want to put a bookmark in what you just said about your effort, you hope to take the majority in the Georgia House. Because although Georgia didn't come up by name last night in the debate, when we get to talking about the debate, 
Pete Buttigieg did make a comment about his concerns about what might happen in down-ballot races if Bernie Sanders is at the top of the ticket. But we are going to park that and get to it when we talk about the debate. But it come, plays right back into what you're talking about now. So we'll and, get and to Bill, that. The only thing I'd add about these lists, right, he, you know, Tom Perez has put Georgia on the list, mm-hmm. but that's different than seeing the money actually flow. And that'll be driven by poll numbers and whether or not Bernie Sanders is the nominee and those kind of things. Yeah, Greg, I think that he's makes a good point. And yep. I wondered the same thing as I read your story. What, what's your sense about how fully committed uh, uh, Perez and the DNC are to putting big resources into Georgia? Yeah, that's what I asked him multiple times is what will this actually mean? Because we've heard, you know, we've heard things like this before for Georgia. Um, and he said, look, it's going to come soon. And he didn't give me an exact timeline. Um, but the state Democratic Party has been very involved in this too. And and Scott Hogan, the executive uh, Scott Hogan, the executive director, was was up in South Carolina hashing out these plans. They've been hiring a lot more staffers. We, we, we they might not have given a big rollout yet, but I, I think we're going to start seeing the effects of this very soon. All right, uh, let's talk about another story that you uh, uh, sent to us uh, to, that you published in the AJC uh, uh, about a, a, a visit to South Carolina by Chris Carr. Attorney General of the state of Georgia, who is becoming a real surrogate for the Trump campaign. Uh, your story tells us that he, Carr, was there with other law enforcement officials, Republicans from a couple of states, Arkansas, I know, being another one, uh, a couple of attorney generals. They, they held an event in which basically they went after Democratic candidates for president in advance of the debate. What was that event all like? Uh, what was it like? Yeah, it was kind of a counter-programming event um, designed right before the debate to push back. Uh, I haven't seen Chris Carr in this role, uh, partic- in this particular role before. Usually, when you see Republican surrogates come up, you see you see David Perdue, you see Ralph Reed, you see Sonny Sonny Perdue, you see you know other other officials who are more a lot who are, who are more closely uh, tied to the to the Trump administration. But this is a sign that Chris Carr sees himself as as a more visible, higher-profile national figure. Um, and he was advocating for uh, Trump's criminal justice policy, and really, and we'll talk about this some more. You mentioned this, but painting Bernie Sanders as the face of the Democratic Party and saying that, that his "quote unquote" socialist agenda uh, is too far left for voters in in both Georgia and South Carolina. Although I don't quote you, the, the I don't have the exact quote. What essentially you say that Carr said was that Sanders will be a threat to the First Amendment. And a threat yeah. to the to the capitalist system of government, and that he should terrify uh, terrify voters. So I, well, Kyle, let me ask you about this. The attorney general of the state, we get it. Chris Carr is, I think Greg made the point, is positioning himself to be someone who can be a major player in national Republican uh, Party uh, uh, circles. And there's no reason why he, he shouldn't have a future as a Republican candidate, perhaps down the road for governor or other offices. But it, it's I can't I look back on attorney generals past in this state. I can't imagine Sam Olins would have become a surrogate in this way. I can't certainly Michael Bowers oh, would Lord, not no. likely have been a surrogate. I, I just it is interesting, Kyle, that Chris Carr jumps into this clearly very enthusiastically. Yeah, I was really surprised too when I saw this story. I I didn't I wasn't actually aware that he was trying to sort of put himself as a part of this conversation as a as a surrogate and I do think that that sort of signals that 
um, that he is thinking about other jobs in the future that he might be considering. Um, it was also, I think, somewhat ironic to me that he framed his appearance in the in the Twitter post that he put up about it as defending President Trump and the rule of law, because the Trump administration has their own problems in the court. They have tons of problems implementing the regulations that they've been pursuing. They've won five times and lost 66 times in the courts related to administrative procedure cases. Um, and so I don't know that that him and the, the president's approach to the rule of law sort of is the best uh, surrogate in this instance. Uh- uh, all right, Heath Garrett. Chris Carr's one of your. Uh, he's a client of yours. He is a client. So, a good what about him jumping into a, in a partisan way like this? Well, I mean, look, he is a Republican, and and he has been the chief of staff for Johnny Isaacson. Mm-hmm. He followed me in that role. He's been the commissioner of economic development for Nathan Deal. Chris is a rising star within the Republican Party, not just in the state of Georgia, but nationally. He's the vice chairman of the Republican Attorneys General Association, which is a national platform that he assumed last year, and that's partly in recognition to both his political skill and his public policy knowledge as a lawyer. The uh, What really precipitated this is that Michael Bloomberg has been funding activist lawyers in Democratic AG offices all over the country through his largesse of his billions of dollars. And so the Republican AGs are pushing back on that, saying, hey, wait a second, you've got a, nom- a potential nominee who's been funding Uh, activities within our opponent's uh, AG law departments, which we do view as a threat to the rule of law in the country. And on top of that, you had the rise of Bernie Sanders. And Chris Carr is a philosophical, free market, uh, Republican, uh, conservative in the image of Lincoln and Johnny Isaacson. And that's where Johnny Isaacson gets partisan, right? At the end of the day, when you start talking about socialism, uh, obviously we have a whole new generation of folks who either haven't studied socialism and its effects on society or have they're trying to redefine socialism. But that's a real threat to the rule of law. It's a real threat to our economy. And so I do think this is the kind of thing that gets. Now, I, I disagree. Sam Owens was a surrogate for Mitt Romney and uh, oh, the presidential know campaign. I, I take it back. I remember, and, now that you said that, I remember And that. Sam's a client of mine and has been and a yep. great, great friend. And, yep. of course, Mike Bowers wasn't a surrogate, but he was the most outspoken yeah. AG we've Mike ever is had. outspoken, but Mike is, I know Mike very, very well, and he is nobody's surrogate. So, Terry, let me let you get into this conversation. I do think, I don't think that that Heath, I, th- I don't think he was really saying that Chris Carr and Abraham Lincoln are kind of two peas in a pod. Well, <laughs> he, it comes from that line, that line of Republicans, right? Okay, the Lincoln I Republican right. and the so, Isaacson. Yeah, right, not, not, yeah, he's, yeah. No Abra- he's not comparing himself nor am I to Abraham But Trump is not that kind of Republican either. And I think no, you're, but, if you're talking about, you know, Chris Carr being a free market, he, he's, he's a classic conservative. That's not Trump. I don't think you could say that Trump is a free market Republican. Well, Trump's policies are, right? I mean, I know people Tariffs, don't like maybe. Trump's and his tweets, but at the end of the day, right, I mean, he's he's pretty he's pretty much done almost everything that Reagan and Bush did. He just does it a little more loudly. I do That's th- one way of putting it. <laughs> I, there's Again, I want to go back on this. I just I find it, Greg, interesting that that. I think what all of us will probably take from this is is what we you said, Greg. I'm said it. Uh, this is a guy who really is looking to a future uh, in offices beyond attorney general, right? Sure, and you see, and he sees the same poll numbers that we've talked about on air so many times, which is Trump's approval rating for with among Republicans is sky high. It's it's ninety percent plus in every single poll recently that's come out. And so if if he's looking at it's something down the road, the governor, U.S. senator, whatever it might be, um, he, he, he knows that he also has to support the, the ticket. There's no, there's kind of no two ways about that. You want to weigh in? 
I do. Yes, because I think one thing that you need to do to be careful is look at how, you know, look how Doug Collins reacted last week when Trump said, oh, well, perhaps I will give you this national appointment. And Collins said, well, thanks, but no thanks. And I think that part of the reason, and again, just conjecture, but I think a lot of that might be because a lot of Trump's appointments, there's not a longevity to with most of them. I think, you know, you, you don't know if that's a position that's going to be around being senator. Of course, that's a six year term. You're going to outlast Trump. But but going back to Carr, I've always viewed Attorney General Carr as being more of a uniter, being more of someone who tries to take a very collaborative approach and how he approaches approaches well, he does, the law. He, he does. And, and Trump is not a uniter. And so I think it's an interesting choice. I wonder well, remember, how— Remember, this is as much about the Democrats, right? This wasn't about him going out and standing up for Trump in, in the sense of the way it's been framed here. It was really—we've got two very threatening entities over here, Bloomberg and, and Sanders, for the rule of law, and he's had a long voice on that. The other thing I want to make sure we do, Chris Carr does call balls and strikes, right? You, yeah. you can be a surrogate for Trump and not be, uh, you know, an, uh, an apologetic for everything that I, happens I, I think that. I don't think there's an argument about that right, right. now. Let's, let's do this. Let's do this. Um, we do want to talk about the debate last night. Some of the very themes that we've already begun discussing are going to come into play. Before we do that, why don't we get our first break of the show out of the way, come back, and uh, let's talk about the Democratic presidential debate. You're listening to Political Rewind. Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon. The uh, Boston Globe just endorsed Elizabeth Warren's candidacy for president. In some ways, that shouldn't be surprising to us. It is, after all, her home state newspaper. On the other hand, uh, in 2018, the uh, Globe editorialized about her in a very negative way, saying she was a divisive figure in Democratic Party politics. This endorsement now says, uh, and I'll say this, they hail her uh, as the Democratic Party's best suited candidate to advance a progressive agenda and challenge President Trump in November. Fearless and brilliant on her feet, it says, Warren has the greatest potential among the candidates to lay bare Trump's weaknesses on a debate stage, and it goes on from there. So, you know, that leads us to starting a conversation about the debate. Greg, you were there last night. I want to play you just a little bit of sound, Greg, that I think more than anything else characterizes how things unfolded last night. Let's listen. No, here's the math. Can I respond to the Doing nothing is what will happen. Senator Sanders, you're allowed a quick response, and we would like to allow you to be moderator, guys. Can anybody anybody in this room imagine moderate Republicans going over and voting for him? And you have to do that or you can't win. Imagine spending the better part of 2020 with Bernie Sanders versus Donald Trump. <laughs> Greg Bluestein, every now and then listeners uh, send us notes saying, gee, some of your guests were talking over each other and we couldn't understand who was saying what. Uh, that was the understatement of the night last night. My gosh, the chaos was as- astonishing at times. Yeah, the most frequent word in the transcript of, of the debate was crosstalk. And, and the moderators throughout the debate really struggled to, to maintain any sort of sense of order. And you could just see 
um, former Vice President Joe Biden is visibly frustrated multiple times saying, what, you're just going to you know, keep on letting other people talk over me? Um, so it was, it was just an, it was it was an angrier, more combative confrontation. But a, but as the clip showed, it also focused on whether or not uh, Bernie Sanders could hurt the down ticket candidates in places like Georgia, where um, you know let's look at Lucy McBath, let's look at the the state representatives that that Representative Nolowitz just mentioned, uh, mostly you know suburban lawmakers who who won election in in 2018. Um, are are they going to be? Uh, are they going to be imperiled if, if Bernie Sanders is at the top of the ticket? Yeah. Um, Terry, uh, part of the reason for the uh, extreme chaos, everybody jumping to get their voices heard last night, is this is the last debate, not only before South Carolina votes on Saturday, but before Super Tuesday, where we're going to have 14 states uh, voting, and for an Elizabeth Warren, for an Amy Klobuchar. I mean, for, for, for most of the people on that stage— this is a final opportunity to really position yourself. That's right. This is the last stand. And, you know, the reality is, I mean, I think Liz Warren is phenomenal, but the reality is she's polling below 10 percent in South Carolina. And I think that that is what has a lot of when you talk about the down ballot Democrats, it's a very concerning thing when we see a lot of a lot of the base, you know, a lot of the Democratic base in Georgia, especially the suburban women base here in Georgia who are all in with Elizabeth Warren it's going to be tricky if she's not the one at the top of the ticket. Someone asked me the other day, oh, well, what do you think about Georgia if we go to, to give, have a straight ticket voting option? And my response was, it was an email, it was in all caps, and I was like, oh, lordy, no. <laughs> because there, there's no possible way that would be a good thing for down-ballot Democrats in Georgia if Bernie when Sanders we're trying to flip seats if Bernie Sanders is at the top of the ticket. So, uh, Kyle, uh, Bernie Sanders finally took some heat last night. He hasn't in debate after debate. This was our 10th debate, and it's the first time that he's really come under significant fire. Um, and, of course, Kyle, I'm going to play a quick piece of sound and then ask you to start this part of the conversation. Of course, one of the things he was uh, hammered on last night for a brief period of time was the comments he's made about Cuba, saying that Fidel Castro did some good things for the Cuban people. Uh, he's uh, talked about the Sandinistas in another uh, example. Many people who are listening to this show won't even remember who the Sandinistas were, the Nicaraguan revolutionary government that was a repressive government that the United States fought a war with. He had, he's had kind things to say about them. And these are things the Republicans are going to really trounce him on if he becomes the nominee. So let's listen to uh, Bernie Sanders on defending his comment, his positive comments about Cuba. I'm hearing my name mentioned a little bit tonight. <laughs> I, I wonder why. I have opposed authoritarianism all over the world. What I said is what Barack Obama said in terms of Cuba that Cuba made progress on education. Yes, I think. Really? Really? Yes, Literacy because there's programs no are bad. What Barack Obama Barack said Obama is they made great progress on education well, and health care. That was Barack Obama. Uh, Kyle, I got the uh, Bernie Sanders seemed to be kind of startled that he got booze at that moment. He got booze a couple other times as well, Kyle. Yeah, and I'm a bit surprised that he didn't take this as an opportunity to sort of broaden his tent and maybe set aside some of his foreign policy preoccupations that 
people who are socialists and leftists, they feel strongly on this issue, but it's not one that I think has an appeal to a broad general electorate. I think there's a real vulnerability for him there on this issue. And it was interesting in this is happening in the context of a study that came out yesterday showing that Bernie Sanders' lead in head-to-head matchups with President Trump is largely based on him increasing turnout among young people who are only going to turn out to vote for him, and that offsetting losses for him of moderate Republicans or or moderate voters who are going to leave his camp and go vote for President Trump. This issue, I think, sort of plays into that dynamic, and I don't think that there was enough of an effort in that response to sort of mitigate this as an issue and, and address concerns other people have. So, uh, Greg, I, I think that one of the important points about that, and it, it uh, kind of pivots off what Kyle said, is that kind of like a Donald Trump, when, when he's uh, uh, speaking to a crowd, when he's establishing policies, Bernie Sanders really didn't, as Kyle suggested, do much of anything to broaden his base last night. He played right to the people who already feel uh, he's their guy, uh, which I, which is interesting. And it, and if he does become the nominee, it really sets up an incredibly sharp, divided contest between the two, doesn't it? Yeah, but like strategy-wise, he doesn't need to quite yet, right? If, as long as there's so many moderate slash mainstream candidates in this mm. race that are fracturing that side of the, uh, that lane of the vote, um, he doesn't need to go into the expansion mode yet because he'll continue to pick up, you know, at least 25 to 30 percent of the vote in all these states. They're going to cast ballots on Super Tuesday and beyond. Um, so it, it, that will give him an impregnable delegate lead without having to expand his base. And he can maybe do that after he picks up the nomination. I don't know if that will happen, but uh, I think that's his strategy going forward is continue energizing his core voters without trying to do, do broader template. Yeah. Greg, I'm just curious. Was Jeff Weaver in the spin room last night? Weaver, of course, is, uh, was his campaign consultant uh, last time around and is still a, a, a big advocate and speaks on his behalf. Was he there and did he talk about uh, how Sanders was attacked? I didn't see him, but it was a nightmare of a spin room. <laughs> <laughs> it was even smaller than, than usual. We were actually, the media center was actually in the same um, space as the as the debate where the debate was held, which is not usual. Usually yeah. we're in a different you know building. Okay. Um, so everything was kind of crammed in. All right. So, Terry, uh, you already talked about it, but I think we, as much as possible, I want to try to look at the debate through a Georgia filter. And um, it, it, Buttigieg said it at one point, there are all these down-ballot races that uh, in states across the country where people are very worried that Sanders' extreme liberalism was what people will call it, uh, is, is going to be damaging uh, for, for, for all those candidates. So to contextualize what I'm about to say, I am, I'm a suburban woman. I'm a Democrat. I'm also a Gen Xer. I grew up when there were very special episodes of my favorite sitcoms devoted to nuclear annihilation as a result of the Cold War. I can quote Red Dawn. I know and I remember from the news that the Sandinistas were not a scrappy band of freedom fighters. And I am horrified to see that we are actually having discussions that that say otherwise. I mean, this is it, it's deeply troubling to me as 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 a Democratic voter and as someone who's in a cohort who, while we are not the largest voting bloc, you still need us if you're going to form the coalition that is the foundation of your path to victory. And I'm I, I, I just I don't see how there is a Sanders path to victory in light of the fact that he seems to be utterly dismissive of the fact that many of the things that he's using to rally these young voters are deeply concerning to 
a large block of voters. You've got to get the older voters. You know, you've got to get you've got to get the middle aged people. You you need if you're going to beat Trump, you need to get everybody. And I don't think that the current discourse that Sanders is engaged in is going to bring anybody over to our Heath, side. Terry mm-hmm. just put her finger on something I think is very important. In Nevada, uh, Sanders got a lot of praise for the fact that he built a coalition. A lot of his he won the Hispanic vote there. He did pretty well with African American voters. His campaign was able to come away from Nevada saying we are a candidate candidacy of diversity, and they could make that claim based on Nevada. The issue that he's got to struggle with, I think is regardless of whether you're Hispanic, African-American, or white, your devotion to Sanders is almost entirely based on whether you're over or under 50 years old. No, that's right. Uh, you know, Sanders couldn't pivot last night because he can't. That's his core philosophy, right? And he's been this way consistently for 40 years. If anything, he may have moderated from communism to this neo-socialism that he calls democratic socialism. We won't get into the philosophical debate. I don't think that's I think that's oxymoronic to say that that exists. However, uh, look, we as Republicans are sitting here looking at this going, OK, this is what we've been making mild arguments about uh, for 15 or 20 years about where the policies of the Democratic Party are going. My candidates in the suburbs of Atlanta, I've got a memo out to them saying this is good news for you. You're going to have a chance to take back House seats and Senate seats in the northern suburbs of Atlanta, uh, even if Bernie Sanders is not on the ticket, because he's taking this to the convention at a minimum. Right. This is going all the way to the convention and we're going to define our Democratic friends with him. I'm sorry, I don't mean to interrupt you. Uh, Guys, can we queue up video one? Because this is a good time to play a brand new ad, Kyle Hayes, that uh, Kelly Leffler's folks have just dropped. Let's uh, uh, listen. From the family farm to the New York Stock Exchange, from the Atlanta dream to the American dream, Kelly Leffler broke the glass ceiling to become one of America's leading business women. I'm sorry, we've got the, we picked the wrong ad. Kelly Leffler has an ad right now, Heath, that says essentially, I'm running in part to stop the socialist agenda of Bernie Sanders. No, it shows you what her resources are going to be able to do on a dime with the rise of Bernie Sanders. She's on with at least 1,000 points, maybe 2,000 points statewide with that message. We know that that not only resonates with Republicans, that resonates with independents and even with the conservative Democrats that I grew up with in South Georgia and in the suburbs of Atlanta. I mean, the Demo- this, is, this is not the Sam Nunn, Roy Barnes, uh, Terry Anulowitz Democratic Party, right? Uh, and so I'm not trying to— <laughs> Thanks, I, I do like oh. Terry, but I mean, you know, I, I think that, that they've got a real issue here. Uh, socialism is to the Democrats what populism is right. to Republicans. Let's, let's, so okay. It's a real I think, problem. Okay, I think you—thank you for making your point. Uh, let's do this. Why don't, why don't we get another break out of the way um, and then come back? I, we want to go through this. Let's talk about Elizabeth Warren. Does she have still an opportunity? Pete Buttigieg, uh, Amy Klobuchar. Let's uh, talk about these things when we return from our final break of Political Rewind. We're back on Political Rewind. Kyle Hayes joins us from NPR in Washington. Greg Bluestein is with us from Charleston, South Carolina. Greg, are you okay for a while or do you need to move yes, on? Yes, okay, sir. terrific. Terry Anolowitz and Heath Garrett are in the studio. By the way, uh, even as we're uh, uh, doing the show today, we've all been waiting to hear whether Jim Clyburn, who is the most influential African-American in South Carolina, uh, most imp- one of the most influential Democrats in the party, uh, has gone ahead. He's endorsed 
Joe Biden, which he signaled he was going to do. He took his time getting around to it. But now that he's done that, we'll see the kind of impact it's going to have on the uh, election on Saturday. It could be very good news for uh, Biden. Uh, Let's do this. Let's listen quickly to us. an exchange between Elizabeth Warren and Michael Bloomberg. Uh, Elizabeth Warren, in the last debate, the Las Vegas debate, set her sights on Bloomberg, was very tough on him. And last night she sort of continued the theme. And I, I, I think it's important to listen. She's talking to Warren. Uh, Warren's talking to Bloomberg in this exchange about his attitude and behavior toward women. And then let's talk about if she had the right focus last night. At least I didn't have a boss who said to me, kill it, the way that I Mayor Bloomberg never said that. have said okay. to one of oh, his on. pregnant employees. People want a chance that to hear. People want a chance to Senator. hear from I, the women who I have never said that. Senator Warren, that is a very serious charge that you leveled at the mayor. Yes. You told a woman to get an abortion. What evidence do you have of that? Uh, her own words. And Mayor Bloomberg, could you respond to this? Never this said it. Period. End of story. Terry Nolowitz, um, where do you think that puts Michael Bloomberg? I mean, he's denied this over and over again. Um, but how do you think Georgia women react to uh, some of the other comments he's made about women? Is this going to create problems for him here? I think it potentially could. It's it's a tough thing. You know, the NDAs are something that I think a lot of people, a lot they, of women, they have non-disclosure agreements. Right, right. They have non-disclosure women. agreements, and that's something that a lot of women wasn't. It wasn't on many people's radar until really the Me Too movement brought the brought that that little legal document into into full focus. And I I, I understand that he's released the women from the NDAs. I'm not three sure. of them. Yeah, yeah. So he's released three of them from the NDAs. And I also understand that you know. Many of Warren's campaign staff have signed NDAs. So I think if we're going to talk about NDAs, we have to be utterly transparent as to how we're going to be talking about talking about these non-disclosure agreements. But I also do think, it, again, going back to the original question, I think it is it is troubling. And then how Bloomberg responds to this, I think, is going to be what indicates to women how, you know, is he that if this if this is 30 years ago. You know, again, we're giving Sanders a pass for things he apparently said 30 years ago. Mm-hmm. So how are we going to apply that logic? And I just think Elizabeth Warren is the person who's now all of a sudden in charge of gender and ethnic and racial discussions in the Democratic Party, given her history of making up her own heritage, essentially, is just, I mean, it's just hypocritical to me, looking at it from the outside as a Republican. Um, and, well, we and, all, you know, okay. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you know, we can argue what, what percentage she is, but I mean, it, it's a, it, it's just kind of fascinating to me that she kind of gets away with that. And, and of course, as Republicans, we're glad that the that they're having this this fight out there. But if you're in business and you have 20,000 employees, your company is going to have these types of lawsuits. And he did a good job of saying, I'll, I'll be transparent about it. So in talking about these debates, something that comes to mind, too, is are, are the debates, when you're ta- the, the candidates are up on the stage, there's lots of crosstalk. Is there priority during these debates to actually have a discourse that's going to elevate the level of discussion and elevate the well, level of understanding? Or night. are they trying to get sound bites <laughs> yeah. that they could then put yeah. on Twitter, put in an ad? Yeah. Elizabeth Warren raised, you know, $18 million off of some sound bites she had against Bloomberg the last debate. So have these debates devolved into where we're just collecting, you know, snippets to put on Twitter? So let, I want to move Lay past on. that and go on to Joe Biden in a minute. But before I do, Greg, uh, I think a lot of people were mystified that Elizabeth Warren, fighting for her life in South Carolina, once again chose to make her attacks primarily against Bloomberg, not Bernie Sanders, standing right there, the guy who is the front runner. 
uh, in this race right now. I mean, I suppose there's some bank shot logic to why she's choosing to attack Bloomberg. But were a lot of people that you were sitting with watching this mystified, too? Yeah, and I talked to some of her aides even before the debate. And I was asking them uh, why why she's kind of um, you know treated, given him the velvet glove approach, and they said that would change um, last night. It did a little bit. I will say that you know one of her first attacks was um, was saying that Bernie Sanders didn't do enough to go after Wall Street tycoons and, and all the sort while she was while she was uh, Obama's appointee to to the new regulatory commission. Um, but look. I think that it comes down to fundraising. And I think that they, they've calculated that their that their base of supporters, um, you know, doesn't look kindly upon uh, attack on a fellow progressive. Yeah, that's interesting. Uh, Kyle, I want to move on to Joe Biden. But, it, but as I do, I, I think it's interesting to point out that um, Warren uh, did start to position herself as the electable uh, progressive. That was really the first thing that she talked about was here are the reasons why Bernie and I have a lot in common, but here's why I'm more electable than he is. And then she went away from that to her attacks on, on Bloomberg, which I think a lot of people found strange. All right. Let's Joe Biden needed a strong debate last night. And Kyle, I'm going to give you a chance to start us on this part of the conversation after we hear him. And he really found an opportunity repeatedly last night. He decided it was all or nothing, I think, for him uh, last night. And uh, in an out-of-control debate in which every candidate defied the timing they were supposed to maintain for their answers, Biden finally seemed to have enough of it. And we'll listen to several uh, times in which he made it clear he wasn't happy with the way the debate was being managed. The fact is, here's the deal. I'm not out of time. You spoke over time, and I'm going to talk. Here's the deal. Here's the deal. We've got to deal with the institutional Thank you, racism. Mr. Vice President. Mr. Vice President. I know how you cut me Mr. off all the time, Mr. but I'm not going to be quiet so anymore, me, okay? Mr. Steyer. Prevent North Korea from launching missiles to take okay. them down. And if we don't... Why am I stopping? You, no one else stops. Okay. <laughs> okay, sir. Here's my Catholic school training. <laughs> You know, Kyle, I think a lot of people thought Joe Biden had his best debate yet. Uh, he was able to use a little humor here and there in the way he uh, talked. But he also seemed to recognize this was it. He had to be strong in this debate. Was that your take on him? Yeah, and I, I think the humor was actually effective because it broke through with the tone of the rest of the yeah. debate being people yeah. seeming really frustrated with each other up on stage. Um, the, the stakes are really high for Joe Biden right now. Um, and part of Joe Biden's problem is there is a lot – there's a crowd on the moderate side of the race where earlier in the race he – when he was the front runner, he was the person best positioned to take on Bernie Sanders emerging from the progressive wing. And so I think the mission for Joe Biden right now is to sort of reclaim being the front runner for the moderate side of the party and being the alternative mm -hmm. to Sanders. And I think this is part of why you also saw him go after Tom Steyer, somebody who – really has gotten almost no attention in prior debates um, because he needs to consolidate that side of the party and set himself up to be the moderate alternative on Super Tuesday. Terry, this is particularly important for many Georgia Democrats uh, because if Joe Biden does not perform uh, well, if he doesn't win South Carolina, uh, the chances of his being a candidate on the March 24th presidential ballot here are slim. So, and there are an awful lot of Georgians waiting for him so that they can support him moving forward. 
There are. There are. And I mean, you know, right now, Biden is in leading the polls for South Carolina. And I think that that's probably accurate. I, I do think that it's it's valid to say that, you know, the Nevada caucus, even the Nevada caucus, has, Nevada has an electorate that's more reflective of the nation at large. But still, that's a caucus, not a mm-hmm. primary. Mm-hmm. And those voters tend to be younger. So I think South Carolina is going to be the first snapshot we really have of what kind of results you're going to see in these primaries when you have a truly diverse electorate, diverse both in ethnicity and gender, but also in terms of age. Heath, um, President Trump made it clear throughout the Ukrainian uh, uh, episode that he thought that uh, Biden was the candidate he needed to damage most, apparently because he thought Biden could give him the toughest chances at reelection. does Biden still feel that way to Republicans, do you think? You know, he, he does not. Uh, we, I do think that Donald Trump uh, did do a lot of damage to uh, to Biden. His, son, his own son did some damage to him as well there in that regard. His own performances, uh, he, he woefully underperformed. It reminds me a lot of McCain in 08. Yeah. He was out. And then all of a sudden, the field had to come back to him. Just a week ago, people were writing uh, Biden's political obituary. Now we're saying if he wins by five points in South Carolina, uh, he, he's going to resurrect the Democratic Party. Well, that's probably Trump. because of the fears right. about Bernie Sanders. Barack right? Obama's chief of staff said, "Never waste a good emergency." Yeah. Uh, the the yeah. Democratic establishment, there's an emergency. I do think Biden's in the best position to take advantage of that in South Carolina. And if he does, it'll be interesting to see, can he sustain that? Because he hasn't shown himself as a sustainable day-to-day candidate yet, but he can, he's definitely got the skills to do it. Um, all right, Greg, let's move on. Uh, Pete, it was left to Pete Buttigieg to make a comment uh, last night that I think uh, many people who've been watching these debates, uh, this year's debates, uh, uh, as they talked about racial justice, the need for uh, finding ways to make the lives of African-Americans more equitable, all of those sorts of things. It was left to Buttigieg last night to make a comment that a lot of people had already been thinking about. I come at this with a great deal of humility because we have had a lot of issues, especially when it comes to racial justice and policing in my own community. And I come to this with some humility because I'm conscious of the fact that there's seven white people on this stage talking about racial justice. And I know that if I were black, my success would have been a lot harder to achieve. And I know a lot of black people that if they were white, it would have been a lot easier for them. That's just a fact, and we've got to do something about it than rather just demagogue about it. And, of course, I should have pointed out that we hear Buttigieg, and then we, we, we do hear uh, Michael Bloomberg. Uh, t- Terry... Um, no African Americans in this race. There were some. There were some strong candidates early on, as we know, uh, Cory Booker, Kamala Harris, and and yet we have an all white electorate. How do you, as a Democrat? How concerning is it to you that there is no diversity in this field? It's extremely it's extremely concerning. I think that once we do have a nominee, I think that whoever that vice presidential pick is going to be is going to be absolutely critical. And I cannot imagine any situation in which you will not have a vice presidential pick who is a person of color, whether it's a man of color or a woman of color. That remains to be seen, whether it's Stacey Abrams. That, that you know, that's, of course, I think the, a logical choice for a lot of folks. That remains to be seen. But while I think it's great that we've gotten to the point where in 2020 we're actually having a somewhat substantive discussion about institutional racism and the legacy that it's wrought in this country on a, on a presidential debate stage, that's not the same as having a person of color up there having that conversation on the debate stage. Uh, Greg, as long as you talk about Stacey Abrams, uh, 
She's making, she's continuing sort of her campaign on, on, in media appearances to talk herself up as a vice presidential candidate. It's fascinating. I cannot recall a uh, political figure who has been as open, sincere, and uh, enthusiastic about the possibility of being a vice presidential candidate. Yeah, she is certainly not shying away from the subject. She's done, it uh, seems like, dozens of interviews every, every week. She was on The View the other day. Yeah. Um, and, and every time she's asked the same question, and every time it generates about the same headline, which is essentially Stacey Abrams is open to being a vice presidential uh, nominee. So she is she is very much putting herself out there. Um, and I, I don't know who she makes the most sense for. I mean, a lot of people think Joe Biden. Some people think Michael Bloomberg, especially given uh, they have a, they have ties too. They have a relationship too. Um, but if Bernie Sanders emerges as the front runner, he might someone he might want someone um, who, who who's even more progressive. I don't know. I think Stacey Abrams has done more with actually less on paper, right, in her bid for vice presidency. What do you say less on paper? Well, I mean, you know, at the end of the day, her highest office, right, was the minority leader in the Georgia House. But, but she did come would close say to she win. She has transformed the way we look at how you build a, a constituency to win a statewide race no, in I, Georgia. I, I, again, I think she, she is a great grassroots organizer. I think she's done more with these nonprofits, uh, you know, and I think there's some challenges coming with that. In the future for her. So, I mean, I say this out of respect. I mean, Stacey's a good friend of mine uh, and worked with her when she was in the legislature. But I do think that you don't have anybody else in contention for vice president, right, um, that that didn't have higher office in, in other places. And so, again, that's a, kind of a respectful comment about her. She's done more with that, not never held statewide office and other things. And so I think that that puts her in this position. And she's in a unique position in the Democratic because there are only seven white people on that stage, that gives her a leverage in this in this discussion uh, that she, she might not otherwise have. And so, I, again, it's out of respect for what she's been able to do. And, of course, we know we, we on our side disagree with the narrative that she's used to get there, and I don't think that's necessarily great for the state of Georgia, but that's, that's a debate for another day. Out of respect for her, she has done more with what she yeah. did in that loss than anybody I've probably seen yeah. in modern political history and uh, has put herself in a position. I think she's got to be a top two or three choice for anybody who gets the nomination at this point. Uh, so we, we haven't talked about Amy Klobuchar really on this uh, program today. Um, it looks like her candidacy, you know, if the polling is right, she's going to have a very uh, tough day on Saturday when South Carolina votes. But on the other hand, Klobuchar may have made the most definitive comment of all, if you're a Democrat, uh, uh, toward the end of the debate when she said this. If we spend the next four months okay. tearing our party apart, we're going to watch Donald Trump spend the next four years tearing our country apart. So, uh, Kyle, uh, if you're a Republican watching that debate last night, if you're Donald Trump flying back from India looking at, at it on Air Force One, I think you feel like Democrats are doing exactly what Amy Klobuchar uh, suggested they're doing. Well, I mean, the interesting thing is Amy Klobuchar is actually doing exactly what she suggested Democrats Absolutely. are doing. Sure, they all are. You, <laughs> you hear, I mean, various candidates have made this point at different points in time, and then they go back to sniping each other, trying to uh, position themselves to be the alternative to Bernie Sanders. Um, and that's the prob that dynamic is the problem for Democrats right now, that it's really not 
in any candidate self-interest to leave the race, but it's in the interest of the party to try to consolidate this to right. one or two right. choices. Um, we're running out of time. Greg, I, because you've been so great to stick with us by phone this whole show, I'm going to give you 20 seconds or so to kind of sum up what last night meant to you and what you think it means to people of Georgia. Well, look, I mean, the, the obvious headline is that it, 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 Democrats are trying to slow the ascent of, of Bernie Sanders and, and at the same time hit, hit Michael Bloomberg. But what I also thought was very interesting was, was Joe Biden and his confidence and his assertiveness and his vow that he will win South Carolina on Saturday. And with Representative Cl- Clyburn's uh, endorsement just now, um, it, it's hard to see him losing that. Battle. All right. That's it. Greg Lucien gets the last word. Greg, thank you very much for being uh, with us. Kyle, thank you for joining us from Washington. Everybody, uh, subscribe to Peach Pod. It's a really terrific podcast. Um, Heath Garrett, great to have you back with us. And Terry Anulowitz, we always love having you here. Thank you. Have fun downtown as the session continues. Uh, I'm Bill Nygut. Thanks for being with us today. We'll see you again for another Political Rewind tomorrow.